Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio show here on WYPR about people, specifically people whose lives are at the root of so many of the policy discussions that we hear on these public radio airwaves. The policy discussion and the analysis are important precisely because they are about real people, the people who represent what is at stake behind the numbers, behind the statistics, people whose lives literally hang in the balance. In our last couple of episodes, we've explored topics including post-incarceration employment struggles and trans health issues. You can find those episodes online as podcasts at uh, iTunes or WYPR.org. Our topic today, gang violence, a problem so severe in Baltimore the city has deemed it a public health crisis. Later this episode, we're going to meet Chief T.J. Smith of the Baltimore City Police Department. We'll talk with him about how law enforcement is trying to engage with the community on the issue. We're also going to meet Terrell, a 17-year-old who has uh, only just begun the work of extricating himself from gang life. I want to start today's program by introducing you to Gardnell Carter, also known as Brother Hamza. As we're going to hear, Mr. Carter was uh, formerly involved in street violence himself, but he's now the manager of Safe Streets East. Safe Streets is a public health initiative that aims to counteract violence in Baltimore City. Outreach workers like Mr. Carter are key to the organization's success. And Mr. Carter, Brother Hamza, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Let's start by rewinding the clock. Um, Tell me about your life as a young person. Uh, You grow up in Baltimore? You're a native Baltimore guy? Yes, I am. I grew up predominantly in um different parts of East Baltimore. What was your childhood like? What um, sorts of people were you surrounded by? Well, in my era time, we used to call them the big boys that we used to look up to, right? You know, they was into a whole lot of stuff. Um, at my age then, um, drug dealing wasn't like pretty much an open-air market, but you knew these guys were doing something that was different from the normal working people, right? And when you say back then, give us a sense of uh, your age now. Uh, I am 56 now, mm-hmm. so I grew up in a Baltimore in the uh, late 60s, 70s. You 20. talk about the talk about the big boys around. Yeah. So this when way. I'm talking about the big boys, you know, these were the guys that um, they played basketball, they played sports, but they were the guys that dressed real nice. You know, you never really seen them. Uh, what we would call now is dolphins, straight out. Um, these people's had uh, these big boys had class, you know, and so they was attracting to um, especially young men like myself. They were role know. models of a sort uh, for you. Yes. So tell me about um, your own life as you got a little older. Did you become uh, one of the big boys? Yeah, eventually I did. I ended up going down the path of um, started out, um, you know, drinking and smir- smoking marijuana, and then at a young age started selling marijuana and volumes and. And it progressed until um, I got involved with a um, heroin organization. And I was back and forth um, with charges. Uh, never did any major time until um, 1988, 1987. I got charged with a attempted murder, right? Um, went to prison and didn't come home until 2006. Tell me about... Um those years in prison, how do you use those years? Did you, um, well, did in you the have beginning, an idea of what you wanted to do when you were released? No, because I was still young, yeah. you know. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to do this time that I had because in the beginning I had 58 years. 
58 years. 58 years. So um, when they sent me up into Hagerstown, you know, um, for me, this was the first time that I actually met racism in my whole entire life. Hmm. How old were you when you went in? I was um, 23, 24 years old. Dealing with what we used to call the hillbillies of Hagerstown, right? Because that's what predominantly what you've seen. Um, you know, even though you had a population that was 99% black, these um, officers ruled with an iron fist, right? And so um, with my anger and trying to figure out how I'm going to do this and stuff like that, um, there was a riot that took place in 1991, right? And um, a lot of people got hurt, and I got caught up in this. And so I ended up going on... 18 months on what is called SU. It's a lockup that sits up off the jail. Solitary housing. Solitary, right. And um, I stayed back there for about 18 months, right. And this was where this gave me an opportunity to really dig into myself. And so what was the driving force behind, I'm going to say, my choice to make a change in my life? Um, One time um, my children came up to see me. So I'm already in prison. And so when they bring me up, they got me shackled um, with my hands and my feet, and then they put me in this cage. So the only thing I could see out of was like a little, let's say three inch by six inch uh, little window in the cage. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my daughter and I'm talking to my son. And at the time, my daughter probably was about seven. And then she just looked at me and just say, you know, daddy, is you ever coming home? You know, and I mean, it just cut me, you know. I'm like, I got to figure out how I'm going to do all this time. But also, I left a responsibility home. I got children, you know. So now I got to, you know, figure out what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it so that I can get out there and um, be a parent. Tell me about um, how you changed inside during those years behind bars and who you were when you stepped out on your release date. All right. So in them years, I got involved with a whole lot of first thing I got involved with was getting my GED. Right. And so the other thing that was a changing moment for me, my mother came into prison to watch me graduate over a prison stage. And the smile that I seen on her face, it was like, I waited all this long in my life to do this. So that propelled me to go into um, trying to sign up for college. But then I'm thinking around like 92 or 93, the Pell Grants was taken away. Um, I think Clinton was in office then. And um, so um, I, I had signed up for um, Howard University, Hoff, I mean, um, Howard County University, and um, that didn't pan out. So I ended up going into um, automotive um, vocational skills, and then I took up plumbing. Well, while in the plumbing class, you know, my um, instructor helped me get my license by the state of Maryland while I was in there. And so then after I completed that, I ended up becoming the 24-hour plumber of the whole institution. Oh, wow. wow. And, you know, from there, I got involved with a lot of self-help groups. Um, also in 92, this one, I made my conversion to Islam, you know. And um, Islam was the only thing that made me want to bow down and surrender. And so um, as I'm taking on all these different um, courses and um making these transitions in my life, I started eradicating certain things in my life. I stopped smoking. 
And then the next thing I wanted to do, the major thing, I wanted to stop using profanity, right? And so as I started completing these things, uh, my walk and my talk became different, you know? And then I was amazed at how many, even though I was still young, how many older and younger guys started gravitating to me, you know, um, showing me respect, um, as well as teaching me as I'm going along, right? Um, I also seen how the administration treated me differently. The therapy, I think, was probably the greatest need that I needed in my life because my mother and my father separated when I was about seven, right? And so that really had a real big impact on me because me and my father was real close. Even though he came to visit us and pick us up every weekend, but not having them there every day was a real big impact in my life. And so I had made a decision at a young age that I was never ever gonna let another man, you know, take my father's place, you know. So I made the decision to say that I was gonna be the man in the house because I had three sisters, right, younger sisters, right. Take me to the chapter in your story of when um, Safe Streets began for you and how you got involved. All right, so um, upon my release in 2006, um, I actually was working for a company called Discount Home Improvement, right? And so I was the plumber for this company. So um, a brother of the name Leon Farouk, which was instrumental in bringing um, this initiative, Safe Streets, along with um, the man in the health department at that time to Baltimore. So um, he had called me up and asked me to come out because he had a problem with his sink. So as I get out there, you know, and we sitting down and talking about it, he did his homework on me and stuff like that. And so he thought that I would probably be a good fit for it because while down at um, Patuxent, I also participated and became a juvenile counselor in this program that was ran down there called Reason Street. When this opportunity approached, he told me he wanted me to apply. So in May of uh, 2007, that's when they did the interviews for the job. And then in June of 2007, we was hired and began our 40 hours of training for, at that time it was called Cure Violence Now, but it was called Ceasefire at that time. We modeled at the program in Chicago. Let me ask you to say a little bit more about the program itself, how it works, Safe Streets, um, what the what you guys do, what your role is in combating gang and street violence here in the city. In 2007, this would have been what was called Phase 1 of the program, which predominantly dealt with um, outreach, right? So we was outreach workers, and we, the particular area that we was given was McElderry Park, right? And so what we would do is go out to um, build relationships with the high-risk individuals that we targeted, right? And then we would take them on as case management, right? And so the uh, goal was to reduce the risk, meaning the, um, the highest risk down to the lowest, finding them job opportunities if this may be the need. Um, whatever the need may be, that's what we would try to find and link them up with these resources. And also partnering with them and them setting their own goals for what they wanted to achieve. So meeting meeting, meeting folks in the neighborhood, sort of assessing where they are on the kind of the, uh, the spectrum of like uh, gang activity, street violence, and then sort of help, helping them find other directions accordingly. Yes, because at the time then, uh, 2007, McElderry Park was um, deemed the most deadly neighborhood in um, 
2007. And so the core group that was initially hired in the beginning for all of us, this being a new initiative and, you know, they telling us that we have to go out here and reduce homicide and shootings, we was like, how are we going to do this? You know what I'm saying? Tell me what those conversations are like. Tell me what it's like when you walk up to a guy and you it's your job now to Man, introduce yourself and see, tell them what you're about and what you're, why you're there. Man, it's information on both sides. Yeah. The guy, you see the information on them and trying to build your trust and everything with them and them doing the 411 on you and find out who you are and where you come from, what is your background. You know, so once these things was established and they seen that, you know, um, number one, this is not one of the other new programs coming in to disrupt the community, but to help the community, right? And so within this task of um, building these relationships, we also mediate conflicts, whether it be a fight, you know, uh, um, drunk, domestic, or whatever it is. Even when it wasn't designed specifically for domestic, but we felt the need that if we resolved a conflict, then it wouldn't be result into gunplay. So um, one of our major uh, mediations came about with a rival group at that time that was controlling the whole Monument Street corridor. And so one of my um, participants was having a beef with one of this rival gangs. So what we decided to do is get these guys together, right? So we got them together, and it was three of these um, two of my participants and two other guys. How'd that go? I mean, and how do you set up so, a meeting like that? Well, we find out who the principal people are, you mm-hmm. know, from the information that I got gathered from my participant. And so we got everybody together, but then when we got them all in our office, and so as a team, we come together first to design our approach and how we're going to do it and design it, right? So we find out who all has links to these guys, I already got my participant and his two guys. So once we got all the parties to agree, we brought them into the office. Well, when they come in the office, this other group outmanned us 10 to 1, right? So we realized this and said, well, look, we only need the people that call the shots. Everybody else can leave, right? So they left, but they're standing outside, right? So... We got them to start talking about what the issues was, right? And, you know, to really come to find out all this was about a misunderstanding and pillow talk. In the center of all this was a young lady that got misinformation from my participant and relayed it to the other group, right? So once we found that all out, then we got the two people that had the, you know, the conflict to go in the back and they talk, hmm. right? And so they shook hands, you know, and then after this, they started hanging out because they had a clear understanding of what was going on. So when word of this spread in the community about how we mediated this, this situation and then what really Safe Street's intent was, it opened up the door for us, for more of the um, guys in the streets. What an incredible story. And to think about any other number of directions that could have gone if you weren't there. Yes. I mean, it could have went south real fast. Talk to me about um, the decades that have passed since you 
before you went into prison. It's like a time machine, I imagine, coming out after that many years. Talk about what's the same and what's different on the streets and with the kids that, you got, that you're working with and mediating with on a daily basis. The mentality, um, self-respect, respect for others. Um, in my era of time, I mean, we had respect for the law, the police, people, our neighbors. Today is just a total difference. And I attribute that to a lot of the trauma over the decades that then happened to these communities. Because what was, I mean, really amazing to me when I stepped out of BPRU and actually seen the condition of Baltimore City. BPRU? That's, uh, it was a Baltimore pre-release center that was down on Greenmount Avenue. Okay. Right. So when I stepped out, and the first thing that was amazing to me was the neighborhood I grew up in, all the houses was boarded up. All up and down North Avenue, Greenmount Avenue, Preston Street, Huffman, all this. So that was amazing to me. So the first thing came to my mind was, where did all the people go? Because I know all of them ain't in prison. I know all of them didn't inhabit the graveyard. So what really took place? You know what I'm saying? So um, as I'm introducing myself back into the community, um, getting to know my family again, because when you're gone for as long as I was, you don't even know your family no more. So I had to get to know them habits. I had to relearn Baltimore City and everything that was going on, the new laws and everything. But one of the things I did notice is just the overall attitude, and not just the youth, but of older people too. It wasn't the same when I left the streets. Mr. Carter, I, uh, I tip my hat to you on the work that you and your colleagues are doing, and, and I want to thank you for, mm. for taking this time with us. I want to thank you for having me on this show. And, I, you know, with all this, I know there's um, a lot of men, young and old, um, their stories are similar to mine and even greater than mine that are doing some great work out here. I just hope that all of us can just grab one young man and assist him in developing his life and changing his life and moving on to um, something better. I know there's a lot of odds against this, but, I mean, we could do it if we all try. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Coming up, opinions are polarized around the methods of the police in their struggle to control gang-related violence. We'll talk about those methods with Chief T.J. Smith of the Baltimore City Police Department. Stay with us. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. We're talking about gangs in Baltimore this hour. In our last segment, we heard about gang life and gang violence from the perspective of a former gang member, Gardnell Carter, who is now working with the Baltimore organization Safe Streets to counteract violence on the streets of the city. We're going to switch our lens now and look at the gang problem through the eyes of the law enforcement agency charged with stamping it out, the Baltimore City Police Department. T.J. Smith is Chief of Media Relations for the Baltimore City Police. And uh, Chief Smith, thank you for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Safe Streets, the organization we learned about from Gardnell Carter. Talk about um, sort of what kind of partnership, official or otherwise, there may or may not be between Safe Streets and the police department. 
Well, again, the intentions of safe streets are the intentions of the police department and other citizens, concerned citizens, and that's to try to tap out problems before they become a bigger issue. Uh, safe streets doesn't work for the police department. Um, our our partnership, so to speak, is limited because that can blur the lines of what the intentions safe streets is for. We It could be dangerous to the members of safe, safe streets, and that's not what the program is for. So that program is for the communities, for them to go out and be able to identify some problems and intervene in some problems that the police might not be able to. And then it might not even get to a level of needing police intervention, which is a win-win for everyone when we can accomplish that. Uh, Sometimes, of course, we fall short. But again, uh, that program is run through the health department, and it's something that is uh, advantageous for the city of Baltimore. They're there, ideally, so that you don't have to get involved. Right. Correct. And we've seen instances in the past where they've disrupted uh, some uh, problems that could exist. And that is what matters. We want to disrupt the problems and and resolve the problems. Can you give us a lay of the land, Chief, from the police uh, intelligence perspective, just on how big the gang problem is in Baltimore, just how much... Uh, street violence is related to gang activity. So uh, we see gang violence, sadly, on a regular occasion. And we have seen it's been well documented through various news reports. We saw it in the jails um, in the recent past, of course. And we still see it uh, billowing out onto the streets. And we see this gang violence. And we talk about this often, that the drivers of a lot of the violence that we've seen gangs, guns, and drugs. And a lot of it is synonymous, where they have a purpose. Gangs have a purpose, and their purpose is different than what it used to be, where you used to have someone in a gang that could stop the violence, that could tell people to calm down and know no more violence. But now we're at a place where it's not only gang violence, it's just uh, young people that are behaving in a way that have access to guns and they don't really have any respect for that gun and the way they use it and no respect for people out on the street. It's interesting to hear you say that. So what what I'm hearing you say is in a way it's a sort of a, a, a deterioration or evolution or mutation of gang culture itself that has made uh, the violence, gang violence, worse in a way. Of the hierarchy, at least, in the gangs. Um, I've had actual gang members come up to me Uh, Some that call themselves OGs, some that have been in the gangs for a while, and they've told me that that one of the things they say in the slang, these young boys are out of control. And they talk about how nowadays some of the things back when they were on the streets in a different way uh, lead to violence, where uh, a simple disrespect situation that would have been a fist fight turns into a fatal shooting. Um, so that's part of what has been conveyed to me by gang members and some of what we've found and what we've seen, some of the petty arguments. It's not as much of the arguing over just a territory as it is an ongoing beef. Uh, you actually looked at me the wrong way. And the guns in the hands of those people who know that they can end a situation just like that. So that's been part of our a huge problem that we've been tackling. So you've got kids on a hair trigger. You've got a deterioration of this traditional hierarchy within the gangs themselves. Talk to me about other challenges, other problems from a law enforcement perspective when it comes to um, eradicating this kind of violence, gang violence from a neighborhood. Well, it's accountability, um, personal accountability and just accountability within the system. The commissioner has spoken often about many of the people that we encounter and that they become the poster children of bad behavior, so to speak. 
Earlier this year, we had a young man that the police were forced to shoot in a fatal uh, police-involved shooting, the first one of the year, a young man named Curtis Deal, 18 years old. We don't have him as a validated gang member, but the validation doesn't really matter. When you're hanging with a group of people for the purpose of uh, some illegal activity and you do it in the name of something, you can call it what it is. But this young man had been arrested three times within the past month for a handgun. And the commissioner has pointed out on many occasions that it's almost not his fault because the system failed him. So we continue to look at some systematic issues where it's the same people that are our biggest problems and that are the community's biggest problems. And it's many people that are probably listening right now that live in a certain geography that can say, yeah, I know so-and-so. Seems like he's always back out on the street after he gets arrested. I know so-and-so. But that's a comprehensive plan that involves everyone to invest in. And we're talking from an educational standpoint, from a criminal justice standpoint, from a law enforcement standpoint. There's so many different facets of that that we have to look into. As a police department, what do you think you guys are doing well in combating gang violence? And what do you think you need to be doing better? Well, one of the things I think that we're doing well is we get super hyper intelligence. It's the information flow is uh, really, really great. And we uh, unfortunately know uh, many people who are potential targets to be the next victim based on patterns that have developed where we know and, and to see some of the commanders who are seasoned veterans in this immediately when an incident occurs, a non-fatal shooting. They hang out with so-and-so. This is possibly who the next target could be. This is possibly who's going to retaliate as a result of this person being shot. So, of course, us acting on that intelligence is something that we try our best to get better and better at every day. It disappoints us each time if we are right on it and then they were a block over or two blocks over from where we deployed resources because we knew it was going to happen. The amount of on-view shootings that we've seen this year is quite unprecedented, honestly, and that's where an officer sees or hears the gunfire because we're in the geography. And that brings us to a greater point as we talk about this in this uh, particular uh, show that you're doing as we talk about communities. The one sad thing about my city of Baltimore, I'm, I was born and raised in Baltimore, and to go back 20 years, to go back 25 years or more, the geography of where the violence occurs hasn't changed much. The amount of people who might be victimized in those geographies has escalated and declined over the years, but where it's occurred hasn't changed much. So as we talk about these continued issues, we have to talk about what investments are going to be in those communities that have systematically been problematic for many, many, many years. Chief, you talk about the quality of intelligence that mm -hmm. your officers have. Uh, talk to me about cultural intelligence. Talk to me about emotional intelligence and talk to me about that strain in trust between the police and the neighborhoods that they're operating in. How much of a problem is that lack of trust and is it is it repairable? Well, it's absolutely repairable. And I think that a lot of people from afar and you can go and talk to someone and give them a leading question and they're going to give you the answer that you expect. And that might be we don't have a good relationship with the police. However, we can go to many, many communities and people see dramatic improvements as to what's uh, going on with police. And you talk about emotional intelligence. Um, just a few weeks ago, we had an officer 
who arrived on a scene of a man who wanted to kill another man. And, and he got to this scene and he talked to this man and he talked to him for more than an hour and they de-escalated the situation. He found out this man had some uh, mental health issues going on and we ultimately got that man to a hospital. The officer called and thanked the trainers at the police academy for his training in crisis intervention because he knew I don't have to escalate this situation. I don't have to just lock them up, throw them in a cell. We can maybe tap out a bigger issue of having to continuously respond or allowing this situation to get to a point of violence by getting this man the help he needs. So we've been able to insert ourselves into different um, um Things because that's what police are expected to do. Wear the different hats, whether it's social worker. We have a homeless outreach team. A lot of people don't know that, but our homeless outreach team knows pretty much every homeless person in the city. And they've had great success stories of reuniting people with their families, finding out many don't even reside in the city of Baltimore, but making those connections. And a lot of this comes down to emotional intelligence of dealing with a human being on the streets that has some mental health crises going on. It could be a temporary mental health situation based on the circumstances, and we're able to work with them because we've gotten some better resources in play. Chief Smith, that uh, anecdote um, that you just mentioned really it brings me to my next question, which is the reality is obviously you are a police department. You can't be a social services agency. Um, but say a little bit more about to what extent it is in your own strategic interest as a law enforcement agency to take on the mantle of some of those social services that might stem the problem of violence on the front end, might help people, um, you know, de-escalate and might make life easier for your officers down the road. Well, we have to. It's not even, uh, it, you know, in Baltimore, unfortunately, the big talk is the violence, and, and it's, it's a necessary conversation. But if we were able to put that aside for a second and look at everything else that we're doing as an agency, guarantee you we're on the front lines. We've had police departments from all across the country coming to Baltimore to learn more about some of the programs that we have introduced here. Um, and like you said, law enforcement-assisted diversions, one of the programs that we're involved in that we launched earlier this year, where we lock up someone or we encounter someone with a small amount of drugs, we can get them to treat instead of putting them in jail. That can change someone's life right then and there, where this wasn't a thought five years ago, 10 years ago. You look at our crisis response team. They had a save, and I call it a save, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, just off of Martin Luther King Boulevard, where a woman texted a picture of a gun. She had her two children in the house and texted to a loved one. They were familiar with this person because the person had had some other mental health issues, and they were able to go talk to this person, and this barricade situation became a situation where they were able to de-escalate, get that person out of the house and into the hospital. So these things are things that we have to do. As the commissioner always mentioned, we're the 24-7 face of government in any city of America, basically. So we're always working, always on, and we're always going to be the front line of any crisis. And then we'll work to scale it back to get other people involved. But we have to be the ones prepared to deal with it from the onset. Chief Smith, uh, in the next segment of our program, we're going to hear the story of a young man, 17-year-old, who has been uh, arrested twice. He has had bad run-ins with the law. Uh, he is not a fan of the police. He doesn't uh, trust the system. Um, what words would you have for him? Uh, he's in a program now, as we're going to hear, um, working on setting some goals for himself, but he's swimming upstream right now, and he's in a community that is 
very actively um, pulling him back into the life that he's trying to walk away from. Um, as a representative of the Baltimore City Police, what words do you have to say? Well, that's a tough scenario, and it's a tough environment and set of circumstances that the young man faces. But I would encourage him to give officers a chance. And basically what it comes down to, and we can look at this from a national perspective of how our country is right now, it comes down to listening. It comes down to actually having a conversation and listening. And I'm talking about the officer listening to the young man, the young man listening to the officer. Uh, Shante Guy is executive director of a great program called Community Mediation, where the officers have sat in the chair and listened to young men like uh, Tyrell's age, 17, and they air their grievances. And then the officers air their grievances. and They have conversations. And something as simple as music, I remember when I used to drive around a patrol car and a kid would hear some of the music that I played and said, I listened to the same thing. So that barrier, that barrier is something that has to be broken down. And I certainly can understand how he could feel a certain way based on some of the circumstances that I have limited knowledge of that might have occurred. But it comes down to listening and having a conversation without barriers to try to get to some sort of even ground of understanding because that's where a lot of this gets lost in translation. T.J. Smith, Media Relations Chief with the Baltimore City Police Department, thank you for being here. Thank you. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. Coming up, we're going to hear more about Terrell's story. He's a 17-year-old trying to extricate himself from a history of violent crime. Terrell's change of direction has left some of his old friends upset and turned him into a target in his own neighborhood. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. We're talking about gang violence in Baltimore this hour. And our conversation is going to take us now to a wood shop on Caroline Street next to the Inner Harbor. It's called the Fresh Start Program. And uh, it's under the umbrella of the nonprofit organization Living Classrooms. The people working in this shop are mostly teenagers, uh, mostly who've had run-ins with the law. One of them is Terrell. That's a pseudonym that he chose for his safety. I'm 17. I'm in the Fresh Start program. For the reason why I came to the Fresh Start program because I was acting up in school, wasn't going to school, and when I came to Fresh Start, it was changing my life around. Tell me what happened when you were 14. 14, getting locked up, all that other stuff. Young boys do. Locked up for what? Like what? What were you? Robbery. I got locked up for robbery, strong on robbery. And it's a couple cars, but I just I regret it every time I say it for real because I just wish I could take it back. Terrell, as you can hear, is reluctant to dwell on his past. He's been in the Fresh Start program for a few months now, and he's trying to focus on his future. He's motivated now by the ambition of becoming a car salesman. Here in the studio to tell us a little bit more about Terrell's story is a woman who knows him well. Her name is Cheryl Riviere, and she is the program director of the Fresh Start program at Living Classrooms. And Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Before we hear more about Terrell's story, tell us about Living Classrooms and the Fresh Start program. Um, Fresh Start program is a program that works with young males ages 16 and 19, and most of our young males have been in referred to as through Department of Juvenile Services. So our program is considered an in-community educational placement, or we are the um, transition plan for them to get their educational needs meet if they're coming from an out of 
home placement. Um, so it's parole officers most often who refer kids to you. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Um, so our program, we use woodworking as a medium to teach a variety of skills. Um, I like to say that we're not training woodworkers as we're training workers and upstanding citizens um, to be transitioned back into the community. Our program work on a 40-week curriculum in which we provide vocational training, academic remediation, um, job readiness, in addition to job placement. So our program, um, we do not graduate anyone from our program if they do not have a job. So we make sure that they're employed before they graduate from our program. And that lessens the risk of them partaking in risky behaviors once they complete our program. I wanted to ask you about that, Cheryl, about this idea that, um, I mean, you're teaching woodworking, a very specific vocational skill, but you're teaching something bigger. You're teaching something more abstract. Say a little bit more about that. So we're teaching them how to work, how to be responsible, how to maneuver through a structured environment, because many of our guys are not coming from that structured environment. And we're also trying to teach academic in a more hands-on way. Are uh, Many of the young men who come through our program do not have a good experience from the traditional educational setting. So, for example, we do have academic remediation where they're required to do an hour of in-classroom assignment to work on obtaining their high school diploma through the GED test. So if we have a skill in that one-hour formalized classroom where we're teaching Pythagorean theorem, we're going to come on the shop floor and utilize the woodworking piece to teach that same skill. So our curriculum is integrated in which is not a one-size-fit-all approach. We try to tailor each lesson um, to meet the needs of the young man that we're serving. Back to Terrell's story, Cheryl. I know you're very inspired by Terrell and the progress he's making. Help our listeners understand a little bit more about him and um, some of the challenges he's had to overcome to get to where he is today. So Terrell was um, referred um, to our program through the Department of Juvenile Services. His DJS case manager um, actually set up three appointments for him before he addi- before he actually came to the fourth one. Hmm. He was very reluctant um, to come. Um, he did not have a good experience in school. And he was just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not coming. So his mom gave us a phone call to find out more information about the program. And we told her and um, she said, I'm going to bring him down there. We're going to. And it would be every time they set up an appointment, he would go MIA. They would not find him until he came through the door. When he came through, he was like, this is something I can do. So the first We worked through eight weeks modules, and the first eight weeks of the program was very rough for him. He was not used to being into structured. We would like, we have a small learning environment, so we would work one on one with him, and he would like, Why are you sitting next to me? Hmm. Why are you working into, like, why are you giving me such individual attention? Um, So the first eight weeks was very rough, but as he as he matriculated through the program, then the second eight weeks, he was like, this might be something. So he moved from the toolbox, where it's all hand tools, to our production module, which he is working with the power tools and actually working in our student-run business because we produce furniture and other custom projects for sale to the public. 
Um, and during that time, we started to see him blossom through the shop as a leader. Um, he partaked in our yoga and mindfulness component, which he really loved. And then he used, like he said, he would use some of those techniques to help with him calming himself down. So um, he started to blossom. He started to come every day more enthusiastic, like really believing in the program. So we just saw this young man who came from this hardened, hardened, like real hardened soul to somebody who, you know, is just like the analogy that Shrek uses. You know, I was an onion and you just have to peel, peel me away. You talk about the progress. Let me have you rewind a little bit to uh, explaining a bit more about Terrell's situation and who he was when he walked in the door. I mean, you talk about anger issues. You talk about not wanting to show up. Talk about reluctance. What was going on in his life and just what what had he been through at that point? So by the time we had gotten Terrell, um, he had already had two contacts with the juvenile um, services, the Department of Juvenile Services. His first um, ch- um, charge was um, strong robbery, and his second charge was um, auto um, vehicle a theft. And he wasn't going to school, was not doing what he wanted to do at school. Um, he, His mom at that time, like when we got him, she had just been diagnosed with MS um, at the time. So he was not being focused. So he wanted to make money to support his family. Family means a lot to him. So he was participating in any activity that he could to try to provide for his household. So when he came to us, he was not trusting. Um, He was kind of hardened. Like, you know, he didn't have any empathy. Like, Nothing really bothered him. Um, So he really came to us in a very hardened state. I want you to tell a story about um, something that happened to Terrell along the way through the progress he was making with you guys that just, I think, demonstrates what an uphill battle a kid like Tyrell is uh, fighting every day. Um, So just recently, he, now this is a kid, hardened, working, about to take the GED test and he was walking in the neighborhood um, with his brother cousins and little cousins and a car like circled, I guess saw them and then circled back around and pulled out guns and started shooting at them and Terrell immediately jumped in front of the bullet to shield it from any chance of hitting his brother or his little cousins and he end up getting shot and the bullet went through him and still ended up hitting his brother when we got that phone call everybody's heart just like dropped so it took Tyrell a while um, but he kept on blaming himself because he thought that it was you know now that he's on a right track he thought it was something from his past that came back around um so he was not working not in the program for about a month and a half and it took his brother um a longer time to recover his brother just recently went back to school wow he and his brother shot by the same bullet by the same bullet by the same bullet 
you have a lot of kids coming through the Fresh Start program. A story like that, how common is Tyrell's story? <laughs> Too common. Too common. And just recently somebody asked me, like, how, how has this job changed you or how have working with youth in Baltimore changed you? And I said, well, I think sometimes it changed me because I'm hardened to the point that nothing shocks me anymore. I'm, like, immune, even though I go through the process that, okay, Tyrell did get shot and we, you know, try to console the family. It still is not like, oh, my God. It's not an oh, my God moment. And um, too many times that we have to, like, be on the phone with a mom who's crying. And we have lost quite a few young men along the line who was in Fresh Start doing well. Um, about a year ago, we lost a young man who had one more part of the GD test to take, and he would have had his high school diploma. Compassion fatigue, but also a pretty unique insight, I imagine. Talk about what you see and understand in a kid like Tyrell that most folks probably just don't see. I always say with a lot of these kids, if they were placed in somewhere else where the circumstances were different, they would be superstars. They would be, they would have like that chance to be fabulous. Not to say that they're not fabulous, and I, they always laugh at me because all oh, my boys are fabulous. <laughs> but um, you know, they would have a, a, a edge a, to be what they be. Sometimes I just hear the hopelessness in their voices. Sometimes, and I'm like, it's okay. Like the world is so much bigger. Like you can do so much better in life. Like don't take this small thing that may happen to you and just wear it on your shoulder. Let's see how we can like truck through through this. They're resilient. They are resourceful. And a lot of these guys are so bright. So bright. We just see them on the street and, and they're innovators. Like if you just give them the opportunity to think differently or give them an arena so they can think differently or look at things differently or have somebody who is a positive role model or somebody speaking positivity to them, their their minds just start rolling and then they start to think differently. And I think that that's what I like people to know about them is that you know they're just products of their temporary circumstances and they are resilient superstars innovators and we just have to get it out of them and there's not a lot of people or program programs out there who are working with these hard to reach hard to serve young men do you guys keep any kinds of uh, data on how kids do after they've left the Fresh Start program? Like, how do you define success for these kids and, and how many are getting there? So what we do is we do track them two years. We do have an aftercare of two years. Not to say we have kids who've been out of our program five years and still are coming back. And what we've seen with the guys them who have completed Fresh Start, only about 8 to 10% of them recidivize. You know, um, and that is good. And most of them um, right now, if we have placed them into job with job retention, it's about a 12 to 18 months retention on their jobs. Um, We've had we have we've had guys who come back who 
when their babies are born, they come back. Um, we had a guy who recently, about a year ago, got engaged, and he is living. He was living in Kentucky, and he drove from Kentucky to Baltimore to sh- to introduce us to mm-hmm. his fiance. So um, I think we we are do- we have a great impact on the the guys that we serve. Sometimes I just wish we could have about a hundred guys working with at a time, but because of funding, we are um, mainly, we're only in the process of working with young men who are affiliated with the Department of Juvenile Services. Cheryl Riviere is Program Director of the Fresh Start Program at Living Classrooms. Thank you so much for being here, Cheryl. Thanks for letting us uh, learn a little bit more about Terrell and his story, and uh, we wish him luck. Thank you. As we get ready to wrap up here, I want to hearken back to the first guest we heard from on today's program, Gardnell Carter, former gang member, now Safe Streets manager, a man who successfully separated himself from his criminal past and who is now helping others to avoid going through what he went through. We asked Mr. Carter what words of advice he might have for Terrell, the 17-year-old whose story we've just been talking about, the young man whose future still very much hangs in the balance. This is what Mr. Carter wants to say to Terrell. You're making all the right decisions to uh, change your life and build a better life for you. You know, you really have to look at how you view yourself, how you value your life and how you value your family. You're making all the right choices to do better in life, man. Just continue that process. I know... um, Trying to make that change from that lifestyle that you once was is going to be hard because a lot of people don't want good for you, but you can't let that hinder you. And you already showed that by the actions you took to save somebody in your family. So, Because it's so easy to turn back. It's easy to turn back to them old ways because that's what people want, but it's really about what you want. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org slash life in the balance. And you can reach us with your thoughts and your questions at life in the balance at wypr.org. Life in the Balance airs here on WYPR on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hankin. Thanks for listening.